So repeating the title, what have I got to be thankful for? Well, I guess first of all, you can be thankful that you didn't grow up where I did. Then you might have been able to choose the verb correctly. And you might have learned about the placement of prepositions in a sentence. And if that went over your head, it was kind of weak, I'll say. Hugh Ross, a creation scientist, wrote, God intricately designed every constituent part of the vast universe to serve the needs of human life and enable each person to fulfill the purposes for which he was, he, he was created. Now, he continues, this confirmation profoundly impacts the way I deserve Thanksgiving. When I consider the care of a creator who crafted 50 billion trillion stars, that's several, plus 100 times more stuff than that, over a span of nearly 14 billion years, all so that you and I can have a beautiful place to live and all the resources we need to know him and serve him, how can I not be overwhelmed, amazed, and thankful for his gifts, both temporal and eternal? Thanksgiving always reminds me of how grateful I am for the relationships that have shaped and enriched my life, and my Thanksgiving continues to expand with each passing year as God's creation opens more and more of its beauty to me. Now, that's a scientist, and uh, he's not the Holy Spirit, but he's got a good attitude, okay? If you, don't, if you disagree with something he said, and it hangs you up, get over it. If you disagree with something he said, you don't have to agree with what he said, but uh, don't get hung there. You have to get over that. In God, we find our purpose in life. That, I think that's the first thing that I want to be thankful for. It's not the most important thing. It's just something I chose. When you start talking about doing a Thanksgiving sermon, it's just like everything opens up. Just pick a topic. And I, I came to believe that the Holy Spirit guided me to just focus on this purpose in life because there is so much today uh, that's it, it could, we could say that it's held over from the uh, the meaningless the, the philosophy of meaninglessness that surfaced about mid last century and uh, it had some prophets that uh, were very articulate. And if you read them, you just end up depressed. I was taking a counseling course about that time. And as a part of, of that course, the doctor wanted us to uh, read a book by Rollo May. Those of you that mess around in psychology will recognize that name. And I got about halfway through that book, and I was depressed. And I'm not a depressive I have had a lot of problems. Thank God, depression is just not one of them. And it was like, the, 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 at the same time, the good doctor was telling us that if we wanted to, to meet the emotional needs uh, as they peaked, especially in adolescence, you just kind of had to take them into your house, and then it probably wouldn't work. He had no answers. And why wouldn't I be, <laughs> I, you know, by motivation, I, I am one that needs to see change. I, I, that's just a need I have. Some people can just deal with, with people who never move forward 
And uh, if you see me doing that, you'll know the grace of God has come on me. And I have done that in the past. Kind of in the extreme in certain instances where God just called me to do something and work with somebody. And they just weren't moving. And I was just right there anyway. And, and, and so then you know there is a Holy Spirit. And there is a factor in the kingdom of God called grace. Or I wouldn't have been there because uh, in my mind, if you, don't, if you don't take my advice after a while, I just kind of set you over here and I don't look at you anymore in my little heart. And if that disappoints you, why, there's a lot worse things than that about me. So I'm not going to, uh, that'll be enough disappointment for today. But uh, purpose and healing all of this stuff is, is really important, and life is not meaningless unless there is no God. Now, we could trace uh, the school of philosophical thought of meaninglessness in life uh, back to the pronouncements of Darwin, who gave us a way to get here without there being a God. Now, it's, it's spurious, it is as unscientific as anything that has ever come down the pike, but nonetheless, people in their rush to get rid of God just wrap their arms around and just like, feed me, feed me. And so the result of that has been meaninglessness uh, in life and a whole bunch of other stuff. Now... The fact is, there's a God. There is a God. And if he had wanted to use evolution to create us, he could have. He didn't, but he could have. Because he's larger than our, than our need to know. He's larger than our intellect. And he has a purpose for you being here. That is so good. Now, I remember... When I was in my adolescence, that I didn't know what I was supposed to do with my life. Everyone that was anyone in my family was an ordained minister in the Assemblies of God. And so I was where I couldn't hear from God very well. And you can build up enough stuff where, you know, it's just kind of quiet. But as I drew closer to God and closer to God, Finally, I could hear him, and he called me to preach. Well, it was a relief. You've heard, you've heard people talk about how they fought the call of God, and I don't disbelieve them. I just don't know how that feels because I, I was delighted when that's what God chose. My parents had, had been such a marvelous influence in my life and, and victorious in their Christian walk, and when, when they talked about it, my mother used this... Uh, code phrase for being a clergy person, quote, the work of the Lord, unquote. And her line was, oh, Bill, there is nothing like the work of the Lord. Now, that's the way she felt about the ministry. And she lived that kind of joyous life and, and victorious life and treated her husband and sons in a way that was uh, congress with all of that claim to know God, she acted like she knew God by loving us and serving us. And so when God finally called me, it's like, whew, I started telling everybody, all my friends, I was at Southwestern, all my friends, God's called me to preach. It was wonderful. 
But if you don't share that, you still share the pressure of trying to figure out what God wants you to do. What is the purpose of your life? Where do you need to head in this thing? And as we look at that, I want you to get very clear in your mind that there are people who scoff. And, and some, some of these people believe there's a God, but they don't believe that he will come personally and get involved in your life. And Hebrews eleven six says, if you come to God, you have to believe two things. You have to believe he is and that he will relate personally to you. Uh, the King James, he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. So that's what you have to do. And if you have the first part and not the second, it's not going to work well for you. But if you will humble yourself and just open your heart to him, he will show you what he wants. He will do it when he chooses, not as early as you'd like it, perhaps. That's, uh, that's a common experience, but he, you just hang with him. And so I want to I go to this purpose in life. Why am I here? And, and deal with it in three points. First of all, our purpose in life is to find God's kingdom. Jesus said, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will come to you as a matter of course, will be added to you as well. Come to you as a matter of course is the Phillips translation of that line. And that brings me to something that I want to deal with and I'd like for you to get it clearly, young, old, and in, the, in between. Do not believe that money in large amounts will make you happy. Do not believe that. It's a lie. It will make it handier in some ways. It can be really inconvenient to be really broke. Okay? And if you haven't experienced that, you probably will. I remember... When uh, Eunice and I married, that um, she had 200 bucks. Is that right? She had 300 bucks. And I had 100 or two. I don't know. It wasn't much. She had sold her car. And my car was paid for. That was a wedding gift from a family member named of Edgar. And so we had enough money to get from here to there and from there to our first revival. And uh, it was about as humble a situation as we could have had, isn't it? What is it? It would depress you if I told you about it. And I do not need to mess with your mood, so I'll just say it was a humble situation. When the second revival, the, the, the circumstances in which we lived in that second revival went up about oh several levels thank god because that was a hole the first place we stayed for two weeks but anyway we had two nights off between the first revival and the second revival and the church where i had had preached for a revival meeting in winslow arizona was without a pastor and they asked us to come out we were in New Mexico, and so out means west. 
West and candidate for that church. And so Monday we were there. We drove from Moriarty, New Mexico. It's almost as bad as Winslow, Arizona. Not quite, but we drove from there to Winslow and we preached. And, uh, and then the next day, I think we actually didn't have till Wednesday. I think we started on Tuesday night in Clovis, New Mexico. Does these names mean anything to you? If they do, I don't want to hear it because nobody knows where these places are. But um, on uh, the Wednesday night of that revival, uh, the second night, uh, the church in Winslow called us and told us that they had elected us. So I was, I was rejoicing because I, didn't, I did not travel well. And with a wife, it was multiplied the not so well by 10 and so it was really good to look forward to be living in one place. And when we arrived there, <laughs> Eunice loves to, to say that our first house had cardboard walls. Now, <clears throat> there's a story behind that. So it's not, kind of, it's not exactly like there was just a sheet of cardboard between us and the outdoors. But the fact is, on this one wall in the two bedrooms... Uh, that were on this little house, uh, instead of sheetrock, they had put up cardboard and papered over it. And we spent the four and a half years there, remodeled on that house the entire time, and it looked really good, but I was always sort of dreading if we have a really strong wind, <laughs> that all this work could just go away. No, it was just very humble. Now, it would have been handier to have more money Although we had everything we needed, it was kind of cool. And we were so happy because, you see, that's called the grace of God. We had these marvelous friends to this day, um, people that we could spend vacation time with. And so we, we would go back to visit them in Winslow after we moved to Oklahoma. And every little town, no matter how plain or simple, has a pretty spot there's a little park. There's a couple of three houses in a row that are pretty. Winslow doesn't have any of that. And we couldn't, we just loved it there. We couldn't understand why our friends didn't want to move there. Remember that? And they didn't want to move there because they weren't under the grace of God. But you see, it was okay because of what? The grace of God. So that if you are in the Lord, you don't have to worry about all this stuff that the heathen worry about. You seek first his kingdom. Amen. Seek first his kingdom, his righteousness, and all these things. And we're talking about material stuff there. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is talking about food, clothing, shelter, that sort of thing. Will be given you as well. Find his kingdom. And I, I just want to say to us all, but especially to you who are younger, in our culture, if some, someone becomes suddenly very rich, they become a role model. They may be absolutely hollow as far as being filled with any kind of goodness, righteousness, morality, wisdom. They may be an incredible entertainer or an incredible athlete or whatever draws this sudden wealth. And you check them out, especially our entertainers don't live to be very old. 
as a rule. Their average lifespan is far lower than people like Eunice and me who uh, never did get that kind of money. And I please, we're not poor, and I don't want to, this is not a poor mouth deal. They don't believe it if somebody says, well, he's really poor, uh, unless we're talking about something besides money. I'm not rich, but we have everything we need. But do not pick as role models for your life people who have a lot of money. Pick people who know how to love, who know how to serve, who know how to walk with God. This is what is invaluable. So please keep that in mind. Number two, filling the place of service. John 13, beginning with verse 12, he's talking about Jesus here. It says, when he had finished washing their feet, he put his own clothes, put on his clothes, and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Washing feet was the lowest uh, function in the household, and so the low slave on the totem pole was assigned to wait at the door. Uh, The people would have gone to... Uh, public bath and bathed and then walking through the dusty streets they just need their feet sort of rinsed and the the room that was all furnished and was provided at no charge to Jesus and his disciples for this first evening of the Passover celebration had not been accompanied by this slave and so they came in from the bath and just went and got at the table and they laid on a, a little couch and uh, laid on their one elbow and ate with their other hand so that their feet were sticking out here. So it was really handy. And Jesus got up, got the bowl that should have been manned by the low slave at the door, got the bowl towel, took off his suit coat, tied the towel around him, and started washing their feet. You remember the story. Peter, always talking when he should be listening. Well, not always, but... Most of the time, when Jesus got to him, said, you're going to wash my feet? And in the, I can tell you the answer he expected, because in the Greek, um, the negative, uh, like no and not, and that, that translates that way, what, this was the one that says, no, you're not going to wash my feet. Only it was couched as a question, but it was with that negative that expected a negative answer. And Jesus just said, um, I don't wash your feet. You don't have any part with me. And Peter keeps talking. It would have been such a good thing to say, oh, okay, and let Jesus wash his feet. But then he said, well, no. If that's the way it is, then wash, my, wash me all over, he- hands, head, you know, give me a shampoo. Jesus said, no, you just came from the bath, Peter. All you need is your feet washed. And then he said, if I don't wash your feet, you don't have any part with me. 
And that has probably a, a broader meaning than this, but one of the parts of the meaning of that particular phrase in Jesus' experience with Peter was, Peter, you have been washed by the blood of, that I haven't even spilt yet, but, but the redemption God could already do. But I have to wash your feet on a daily basis. Now, this is not in the outline, so they won't be putting it up in the PowerPoint, but I want you to know that it is necessary to have the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, in your life, every day. You have to have your feet washed by God every day, or you don't have any part with Jesus. Now, it gets really quiet when we talk like this, but this is the kind of thing that will make you able to stand before God and receive his commendation. So don't pull this deal. Well, Jesus, you, I can't have you wash my feet. After all, I'm, I'm so humble. And let's notice how humbled I really am. And you see, that, it just stinks. You, did you smell that? And it wasn't his feet that were stinking either. So then Jesus makes that response, and, and Peter makes his poor response, but Jesus goes in and washes his feet because we have to have our feet washed. Okay, now that was a parenthesis. That was free of charge. We hope we, you paid for the rest of this, but that was free. Now, the business of finding a place of service is that Jesus gives us this model. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. And I can just see us saying, uh, okay, I don't mind washing feet if I get to pick the time, the place, and the feet. And he doesn't give you that choice. He says, no, I'll pick the time, the place, and the feet. And you do what I say. I had to wash the whole room full of feet. Now, this doesn't save people. You understand when you wash their feet, Jesus is the Savior, so we're, it's not related to that. What it is, is several things. One of the very first things is that it opens people's hearts to the good news of Jesus Christ right after you wash their feet, especially if they didn't kind of hint that their feet needed washing. Now, you, you, I hope, are translating this washing of feet into some kind of chore that can be very menial. Washing feet is huge because Jesus said, do it. I've done it. I've showed you how to do it. Do it. And so it's not, a, it's not a matter of, well, I, you know, I, I'll, I will. I'll do that. Yes, Lord. Yes. We can't say, no, God. I'm not going to do that. You know, I mean, we're just way too holy for that. But he says, do it. Do it when the feet are dirty. Do it when I tell you. Do it. I, I have... The privilege, and, and this, this can be a, a way to wash feet. The prayer requests that you fill out and, and get back to us come to my desk. And so I, 
I enjoy bringing those to the Lord. And that, that, can, be, that can actually be foot washing. You can, you can carry people in prayer and actually be washing their feet because sometimes there's no one to, to pray for them. They don't know anybody that's very godly or, or the ones that they know that are godly haven't picked them up as a load. I, um, on my dad's side of the house, that family's been very close through the years. And as, as dad's generation has died off, I have picked up kind of the daddy's role of prayer for some of my first cousins. And I, I bring those people to the Lord and I don't guess I, I'm going to get anything out of that except maybe reward in heaven. I'm sure not getting anything now. They do care. They're good people. But um, there's a way to wash feet. As a matter of fact, if you'd like to wash my feet, I would like it to take that form if I have any say in the deal. Because I need prayer. If people pray for us, things work better. And the kingdom comes in a, in a more successful way in changing lives. But here's the deal. When those prayer requests come to me, I, I appreciate people bearing their hearts and, and, and giving their needs. And not long ago, I received a request. And on this one prayer request, there was the need for prayer because a close relative was going to have a joint replacement surgery. There was a friend, and this is a quote, numerous health problems. There was a friend fighting cancer. There was a family member who needed a job. The family finances were uh, in need of prayer. Another family of relatives also had financial problems. And so I, I was reading down through that and, and starting to talk to the Lord about that. And I got down to the end of it and it says, quote, praise God for his blessings. Praise God for his provision, exclamation point, unquote. And I thought, wow, this is fun because these people have all these needs but they're not mired down in them. They don't have a pity party. These are just needs. Pastor, you said you'd pray. Here, pray for this. And then they had to put that little doxology on the end. Glory to God. And I thought, whoa. They served me while asking for my service. Because testimonies always, you know, just take you up. And I looked at that and I thought, now, this is good. And I, I pray with so much more faith when people are like it. If you don't have faith, give me the privilege of praying for you. I'll try to have enough faith for both of us. But it sure is nice to be able to partner with people in their needs with their faith. So find a place of service and wash feet. And the last point I want to bring to you is attaining Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is not talked about a lot in our churches, it seems to me, because we, we, have, we have dumbed down the message to try to make it easy for, 
for the people who are not oriented in Christianity at all to come to the Lord. And there's nothing wrong with that motivation. There's nothing wrong with that motivation. But you can dumb it down so far that it kind of comes across as you need Jesus to go to heaven, put Jesus in your life. He can fit in there with football and baseball and your job and your family and your partying. He can just fit right in there. Otherwise, you're going to hell. And I never heard anybody teach that. I've just heard a lot of people teach that. Now, I'm not as confused as I just sounded. We dumb it down. And the fact is, the kingdom of God can be entered into by a child. You do not have to have an average or above average IQ to come to the Lord. You do not have to have emotional maturity or intellectual maturity because the Lord is a Savior. And if you seek Him, He will be found of you. One of the, one of the verses that I didn't use here that I was studying in, in preparation for this, this uh, sermon is from the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness because they'll be filled. Hunger and thirst after righteousness? Watch out. Here comes the blessing of God, the righteousness. He just does that. That's his will. And if you study this righteousness in the Scripture... You will find before very long in that study that Jesus is the example and being Christ-like as a Christian in this earth is the will of God. Now, when I start talking like this, those of you that are guilt-prone will, will immediately begin to cut yourself off from any, no slack, you know, it's just, well, that'll never happen to me, look what I just did, and that's a quote from my past. Uh, and if you don't know what, I guess when you speak like that in public, it has to be interpreted, doesn't it? But anyway, um, <laughs> stay with me. <laughs> it may not get better, but I'll quit soon, okay? Here's the deal. Being like Jesus is so high and holy. What? He never did sin. And while he was not sinning, he was hanging out with the Father so much that he could say, I don't do anything except what I see the Father doing. He could also say, I don't say anything except what I hear the Father saying. And then he kind of wrapped it up in another place and he said, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And we're supposed to be like that. Uh Uh-huh. We really are. And that doesn't mean that you'll get like that fully, but the pursuit of that is absolutely glorious because it focuses on something that will always work to take you out of being burdened down by the burdens of this life. And this life happens. The burdens happen, and they come in lumps. You can kind of hang on for a while, and you got three or four ducks in a row, and then somebody throws a hand grenade in the middle of those things can be the enemy, it can be the enemy through someone. But Paul, in talking about this, talking about Christ-likeness, brothers, Philippians 3.13, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on 
toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And he saw himself walking, warring, just washing feet, serving, risking his life, all of this in pressing toward being like Jesus and receiving the, the reward. Paul was, was goal-oriented. He knew what he wanted. He had been to heaven and had seen it, and he intended to go there. Sometimes you'll hear me say, uh, if you go to hell, don't look for me. I'm not going. If you make it to heaven, I'll see you. Because whatever it takes, I'm going there. I'm going there. My, my goal is that everyone in this room will go with me. I, I cannot draw a circle that would exclude any of you. It's just, it's God so loved the world. And that's where we start in, in being Christ-like. He loved the world. We come to him because of this love, and it's just, it's so elementary. We, uh, Gert Bahanna was a, a super, she was born into one of the super, super wealthy families in the U.S., and uh, she became an alcoholic. She married and failed at marriage three times, tried suicide very seriously, intended to kill herself, and couldn't even do that. And so she tells about one of her friends said, um, I think she said to one of her friends, I, I, I think I need a clergyman. Do you want to? go-getter or a man of God? She said, man, I need a man of God. And then she said, I got thoroughly drunk to meet my first Christian. But this Christian stayed with her long enough in that meeting to get the message to her. And so she translated it like this. It sounds to me like what you're saying is that I've got baggage too heavy for me to carry and Jesus will carry this for me. And some of us, I can just see me trying to, you know, let's correct her theology. But no, they just said, well, that's pretty much it. And that's a really simple place to start. Now, this is a very bright girl. But she was really ignorant about God and his ways. And so she gave her life to the Lord. The Lord dried her up. And she wrote an autobiography that is... Uh, is just fun to watch God's hand in her life. And I got to meet her in person. That was, that was a thrill because you can just see this old gal um, had met God. And God had started moving her along this path. And I want you to know, dear one, wherever you came from into the kingdom of God, God intends to move you along this path. And his goal is that you will look exactly like Jesus when you stand before him. Now, if you're not quite there yet, don't be afraid because he is faithful and just, if we confess our sins, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And you've heard me explain this before. Faithful and just... Now, I can see him being faithful and loving, faithful and merciful. What does just have to do there? Because that's a forensic term. That comes out of the court of law. Legally, 
forgive. Well, that's because that's what he did. You see, he took your sin. He's outside of time, so he could, he could reach over and get the first sin, and he can reach down to get those last sins that have never been committed yet. And he could put them in his son who had no sin of his own. And his son died for your crud. And you've been cruddy. All have sinned and been cruddy, the scripture said. <laughs> or something like that. Same meaning. All right. He does that so that when you confess your sins, you are moving into that deal where he, he makes real and functional in your life the death of Jesus Christ who has already paid for every sin you've ever committed and every sin you'll ever commit, that's all paid for. And that's, that's just half of the story. The other half of the story is the righteousness that Jesus was and is, he puts in you so that you can legally stand before him clean. Doesn't make any sense to me. I don't love like that. I know you, and some of you love really well, but you don't love that well. But that's the story. So that you, if you come to Jesus today, and he never has 20 minutes to form his son in you for you to become Christ-like, you, you fall and hurt, hit your head, or you have a car wreck on the way home and die, you will stand clean in the presence of God. He is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. However, if you don't die, he has incredible stuff to bring to you because he may not have cleaned all that junk out of you that you brought. He may work that out slowly. He does it all different ways, and he wants you to be like Christ. And here's what I want you to see. One of the figures that God uses to, to talk about our coming to him and our, our, our life in heaven and so forth, one of those figures is that the church is a bride, and Jesus is the bridegroom. Jesus never married. The Gnostic stuff and all the New Age stuff notwithstanding, God-haters notwithstanding, he never married, but he's going to. And it's, it's going to be far more than, than you can ever, ever imagine. And as excited as um, Anna and Devin are, and some of our newlyweds uh, are about being married, this different world. It's so much better. It's amazing that God even uses that as a figure. But he doesn't, you know, he just has to use kind of what we have here. And I want you to picture God the Father... And God the Son is standing here, and this guy, God the Son, is pure. He is holy. He's never committed a sin. He laid down. He not only didn't sin, he took all our sins and was, was crucified, which is absolutely unthinkably horrible as far as its punishment. The guy that, that shot a bunch of people uh, as a sniper back on the East Coast was given a lethal injection. I wonder, you know, if they sterilized the needle. That wasn't funny, was it? Because he died. Um, and by the way, he died for his sins. And so they're paid for only 
Unless he came to Jesus Christ, he doesn't have any currency. Jesus had the righteousness that was in him so that when he took our sins and died for them, he could be raised from the dead because he had never sinned. And that's the way that works. So Jesus then is standing here, and he's pure and he's holy, and God is going to bring a bride made up of you and me and present her to Jesus. And we're not talking about sex here this morning. We're talking about something that's far greater to become united with God the Son is unthinkably wonderful. You say, well, I, I, <laughs> I could never die. You just don't know me when nobody's watching. I, I'll never be in that. Don't say that. Because God's grace is greater than your, and let's use the R word, than your recalcitrance. That means your stubborn rebellion, you dumb jerk. <laughs> he is greater than our stubbornness, our unbelief, our love of our sin. He is greater. And that's what he's trying to do. If you're not walking with Jesus, God wants to claim you and put you in that bride. If you are walking with Jesus, he wants to just keep working in you so that there is more of that righteousness that works out. It's also called the fruit of the Spirit in Scripture. Many, many figures for, for this, uh, this life I'm talking about, but it's being made in the image of Jesus Christ to the extent that when the bride is presented to the, to the groom... This is not a street woman. Pure, made holy. You ever get a picture of that? It's going to mess with your mind because that's what God wants to do in you. That's his will. That's his plan. Let me say it one more way. God loves his son so much that he was willing to give him in death so that he could have many more just like him. And that's God's will for you. What do I got to be thankful for? Well, it's about a million things. Hallelujah. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you by your spirit and your power today draw us into you? Oh, God, put a hunger in us. And when we start talking about